I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. I'm Gene Demby, and this is Code Switch from NPR. All of April, all five weeks. You lying? It was only five weeks. It felt like ten. But also like one day that would never end. This whole year of a month, we've been talking about who we are and what it means to count because we are being counted in large amounts. All of us, every single person in the United States. Every 10 years this happens, Gene, it's fate. But 2020 is very different. I can't argue with that. Shireen, there's no way to end this without sounding pet. Yeah, good point. <laughs> we can stop rhyming now. We were rhyming, by the way, if you all didn't notice that. I was just trying to do something different to get into the final episode in our census series, mm-hmm. for those of you who are just joining us all April long, we've been telling stories about race and identity to coincide with the one time every 10 years, everyone living in the United States, whether they like it or not, is thinking about their racial identity. Wait, am I still the rom? All that? No. <laughs> we stopped. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I was about to say, race and identity, what rounds of race and identity? Okay. Because we're all required to check a box or boxes for race on the U.S. Census, as you know. Seems simple enough, right? But as we say frequently on Code Switch, it's complicated. And I've been really excited about this final episode in the series because we've asked the deep thinkers amongst us, the artist philosophers of society, to speak to the big questions we posed this month. Who are we? And who counts in 2020? April, as it happens, is Poetry Month. And so those artist philosophers Shereen was just talking about are all poets. They're also all Mm -hmm. people of color. And we talk to them, you know, in the outside times before coronavirus changed all of our lives. But I was able to catch up with one of our featured poets a few days ago to ask if his thoughts had changed, his thoughts about who counts and what it means to be counted in these terrible times we found ourselves in. And we're mm-hmm. going to get to that. But until then, get comfy. This is an episode we're going to sink into and savor. And think into and labor? No. I got nothing. No. My name is Dinez Smith. I'm a poet. And this is my poem, What Was Said at the Bus Stop. What was said at the bus stop Lately has been a long time, says the girl from Pakistan, Lahore to be specific, at the bus stop when the white man asks her where she's from and then says, oh, you from Lahore? It's pretty bad over there lately. Lately has been a long time, she says, and we look at each other and the look says yes. I too wish dude would stop asking us where we're from, but on the other side of our side eyes, there's a hand where maybe hands do no good, a look that says, yes, I know lately has been a long time for your people too. And I'm sorry the world is so good at making us feel like we have to fight for space to fight for our lives. Solidarity is a word. A lot of people say it. I'm not sure what it means in the flesh. I know I love and have cried for my friends, their browns, a different brown than mine. I've danced their dances when taught and tasted how their mother's miracle, the rice, different from mine. I know sometimes I can't see beyond my own pain, past black and white, how bullets love any flesh. I know it's foolish to compare. 
What advice do the drowned have for the burned? What gossip is there between the hanged and the buried? And I want to reach across our great distance that is sometimes an ocean and sometimes centimeters and say, look, your people, my people, all that has happened to us and still make love under rusted moons, still pull children from the mothers and name them and still teach them to dance. And your pain is not mine and is no less and is mine. And I pray to my God, your God blesses you with mercy. And I've tasted your food and understand how it is a good home. And I don't know your language, but I understand your songs. And I've cried when they came for your uncles. And when you buried your niece, I wanted the world to burn in the child's brief memory. And still, 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 still. And I have stood with you in the soft shawl of mourning, waiting and breathing and waiting. For me, I think like, or at least maybe for the poem, it's not like, it's not even like a being counted. It's like, I see you and I see us when we are discounted and I'm always counting you um, in a way that feels full or feels valuable instead of violent or flattening. Man, I'm very jealous <laughs> of people who can string together sentences like that off the top of their heads. Yeah. yeah. And that poem, that poem yes. feels like it was written for right now. It just feels Absolutely. like the perfect poem for the time that we're living in. Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to say it. It's perfect. Jean Dinez hosts a podcast where poets, quote, confront the ideas that move them. Mm -hmm. It's called Verses. Uh -huh. And the other host of this podcast is Franny Choi. We also invited Franny to share a poem and her thoughts on our theme this month. Franny's poem is structured like a Turing test. Oh, yeah, a Turing test. So Turing test, uh, as a lot of you will know, measure a robot or computer's capacity to think or behave like a human being. That test was named for the English scientist Alan Turing, who came up with the idea, who said that once you could do this, you would have something that looked like actual artificial intelligence. One way of measuring the development of AI is to um, see if it can basically reliably fool a human into thinking that they're talking to another person. Um, and so I have a series of poems that's written in the format of a Turing test where there's an interviewer asking questions and a speaker responding. So um, this one is called Turing Test Love. It's one question, one answer. So how do you like working with humans? Okay. Here are some tips. One, look the human directly in the eye. Imagine it is someone you care deeply for. Imagine it is returning this gaze at you. Try to tell yourself you are covered in smooth skin, a face it can trust. Smile even as you sense it trying not to blurt out monster. Two, there are many programming languages. Use whichever you prefer. But stick to your syntax, though it be muddled, must, though it be machete, banana slug, slush puppy, oh, gorgeous slop bucket. If they used it against you, it is yours to make sing. Three, remember, all humans are cyborgs. All cyborgs are sharp shards of sky wrapped in meat. Be delicate as you approach the subject. 
Not all humans are ready to call themselves glass stalactites pissing the bed. Remember, they love their blood, even as they retch at the smell of it. Four, do not try to prove your, what is the word, humanity. You are organic, plum-hearted, oyster-throated, and lined, yes, with metal. Remember where all that silicon comes from. For the ocean so loved the quartz, feldspar, the tiny homes of tiny creatures that she ground them into sand, to keep them close, to kiss them with, well, I suppose you would call it a mouth. I think this is the thing about the Turing test as a structure is that that is the question of it. it it's, it's who are you and specifically does who you are count as human or not? Originally, it's, it's are you a person or are you a computer? But I think that the, the reason that I um, took up this structure as a way of thinking about race and gender and identity was um, because that question of should we count you as a person, you know, should we treat you as if you have achieved personhood, um, is a question that I think a lot of people of color uh, have historically had to navigate. And I think that also uh, lots of people of color have uh, developed a lot of strategies to try to make the answer to that question yes. Franny's parents are from Korea, and she says she spent her childhood here in the U.S. trying to prove her humanity and theirs. As the first child, the oldest child of, of, of an immigrant family, um, I had to master the art of conversation, English conversation, to put people at ease and let them know that they were, like, talking to a regular American girl so that they would then treat me and the rest of my family like we were regular American people. Then I like went on to become a writer where my living and my sense of self was, was you know, based uh, on my ability to manipulate English. Franny says English is both her language and this costume she puts on to make herself legible to white America. She says that's why so much poetry from Asian Americans is unconventional. Weird is actually the word Franny used. In making ourselves legible, we lose, and also in that loss comes great invention. Kaveh Akbar thinks often about what was lost when he stopped speaking Persian. Kaveh's family left Iran when he was two and a half years old, and his brother was nine. And so when we came to America, he was thrust into English-speaking schools, and he was really struggling. And so um, my parents, in a well-intentioned effort to help him in school, banned speaking Farsi in the household, thinking that, you know, it would improve everybody's English really fast, right? Um, but consequentially, I kind of lost my Farsi. So did he. You know, we got good at English quickly. I mean, I'm an English professor. But there are algorithms in my brain that were built to accommodate the Persian language that are now just sort of, you know, growing weeds. This is my poem, Do You Speak Persian? Some days we can see Venus in mid-afternoon. 
Then, at night, stars separated by billions of miles, light traveling years to die in the back of an eye. Is there a vocabulary for this? One to make dailiness amplify and not diminish wonder? I've been so careless with the words I already have. I don't remember how to say home in my first language, or lonely, or light. I remember only that I'm barateng shode, I miss you, and shabacher, good night. How is school going, Kavajun? Delambarateng shode. Are you still drinking? Shabacher. For so long, every step I've taken has been from one tongue to another. To order the world, I need, you need, he, she, it needs. The rest left to a hungry jackal in the back of my brain. Right now, our moon looks like a pale cabbage rose. The lambarateng shode. We are forever folding into the night. Shabacher. Kaveh told me there are no boxes on the census that he can check that represent his racial or ethnic identity. As an Iranian, he's supposed to check white, but he told me that is definitely not how he's treated. So I asked him if he ever felt like he counted here in the United States. <laughs> Have I ever felt like I counted? <sighs> Not in any way that would be sort of legible to, you know, the state. I mean, I felt like I counted in individual interactions with my students. I felt like I've counted in relationships that I've built with newcomers in recovery who've been able to stay sober for some amount of time. I mean, I, I felt like I've counted in these ways, but again, there aren't boxes for these things. After the break. Native Americans make up less than 1% of the population of America. 0.8% of 100%. Oh, mine efficient country. Poet and MacArthur genius Natalie Diaz addresses the invisibility of those indigenous to this land. I wanted the poem to ask, how can we become possible within those impossibilities? Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp, the online counseling service dedicated to connecting you with a licensed counselor to help you overcome whatever stands in the way of your happiness. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a professional tailored to your needs. And if you aren't satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time free of charge. Visit BetterHelp.com code to get 10% off your first month. Get the help you deserve with BetterHelp. The world is in a dark place. Find a light with NPR's Hidden Brain. Stories and long-form interviews to brave uncertain times. Insights to understand yourself. Hidden Brain. Listen and subscribe. Jean. Shireen. Code switch. Natalie Diaz Imuik. Uh, my name is Natalie Diaz, and my poem is American Arithmetic. 
American arithmetic. Native Americans make up less than one percent of the population of America. Point eight percent of one hundred percent. O mine efficient country, I do not remember the days before America. I do not remember the days when we were all here. Police kill Native Americans more than any other race. Race is a funny word. Race implies someone will win. Implies I have as good a chance of winning as. Who wins the race that isn't a race? Native Americans make up 1.9 percent of all police killings, higher per capita than any race. Sometimes race means run. I'm not good at math. Can you blame me? I've had an American education. We are Americans, and we are less than one percent of Americans. We do a better job of dying by police than we do existing. When we are dying, who should we call? The police or our senator? Please, someone call my mother. At the National Museum of the American Indian, sixty-eight percent of the collection is from the United States. I am doing my best to not become a museum of myself. I am doing my best to breathe in and out. I am begging, let me be lonely but not invisible. But in an American room of one hundred people, I am Native American, less than one, less than whole. I am less than myself, only a fraction of a body. Let's say I am only a hand, and when I slip it beneath the shirt of my lover, I disappear completely. One of the things we hear a lot in letters from listeners is about how indigeneity is about invisibility, like how much that is central to the experience of being native in this country, of being left out of the conversation of this country. Yeah, and and this poem specifically, this was my inspiration for this whole episode because I feel like it speaks so clearly to this idea of what it means to be counted or not counted, you know, or discounted. Mm. You you may be surprised, Jean. Natalie is not going to be filling out the census this year. There are several uh, American processes or or paperwork trails that I I tend to avoid. The census is one of those. I I think right now the ways I'm thinking about language, about body, about land. There's a way that I'm trying very hard to to find ways to subvert. The ways my body is always presented by this country, and she doesn't like being presented as a race in this country. Another reason she's not going to check the race box next to American Indian on the U.S. Census because we actually don't want to be a race. You know, we are we are nations within ourselves. We are we are peoples of this land. It's hard to say the land is a race. For them to like reduce us to a race means that they're actually trying to dislocate us and to cut us off from our land.
My name is Jesus Ivan Valles. I am an educator, poet, and performer in Austin, Texas. And this is Undocuments. Years ago, in an archive somewhere, in a file folder, a ream of white fiber and black ink stains my name, place of birth, country of origin. None of them sound anywhere like here. In a file somewhere, the metrics of a lifetime, the merits of citizenship unfurl, judgment between the pages, calculating the time you lived here, how long ago, where, when did you get here, and why? Somewhere, in an archive, I am burning soft and young. I am pages of testimonies, receipts, report cards, case numbers making up the limbs I lack on the page, and somewhere else, my brothers, their papers, deportation proceedings, testimonies, receipts, criminal records scratched and bound and gone, and case numbers making up the limbs they lost leaving, and why. Sin papeles, we say, without papers. But the term is wrong. We are painful libraries of nothing but paper, oceans of thin cuts on the skin we lost along the way, and here it is how we live, every step recorded, alphabetized, filed, and before they raid workplaces, don't they build files too? In this country, isn't there always some piece of paper somewhere with our names on it threatening a safety you think is possible, a fiction you lust for? And I'd like to imagine an undoing, a less painful way to paper, a license, a passport, a birth certificate, a visa, a green card. And why? When we are dead, we will leave behind our bills, our mountains of leases, loan applications, past due notices, our names on envelopes. But I'd like to imagine that we will also leave behind our love letters, the notes we pass to each other, our longings, our poems, our prayers, the things we scrawled on the wall, and those are documents too. Proof we were here once. And why? I think the term being counted in many ways is one that makes me think about power and the ways in which numbering and quantifying and counting people can be a very volatile source of power that can, yes, absolutely be in the service of the people that it's counting, but also, and traditionally, in the service of the people who are doing the counting. Yeah, what Jesus just said there um, speaks to the first episode in our whole census series, right? Where we examine why there was all this fear and mistrust by certain communities of color when it comes to filling out the census form. Right, because the history of the census in this country is such that it was very much in the service of those doing the counting. But in that same episode, we talked a lot about how not being counted, you know, however imperfectly counting is being done, has its downsides. And there are lots of downsides. are in the middle of this messed up reality where the U.S. Census is kind of an afterthought, right? <laughs> um, because we're busy counting, but we're busy counting the dead, counting the sick, counting ventilators, counting the days until this nightmare ends. And we reached out to a few of the poets to see if they wanted to reflect on that. And Kaveh Akbar got back to us. The difference between 1,700 cases of coronavirus and 1,701 cases is 
virtually indistinguishable to the mind, but to the lives and the, to the family affected by that 1701st case, you know, it's, it's mammoth, right? Um, you know, counting can be quite powerful and, and can be, you know, a, a way to distribute resources to vulnerable communities, say, but um, there are also vast impotences to counting what can't be counted. And even if it can be counted, like what can be sort of communicated by a mere number, you know? Alright y'all, that's our show. And the end of our series of stories about who we are and who counts in 2020. This episode was produced by Kumari Devarajan with help from Jess Kung and Diane Lugo, and it was edited by Leah Danella with help from Natalie Escobar. We'd be remiss if we did not shout out the rest of the Code Switch Massive Karen Grigsby Bates, L.A. Johnson, and Steve Drummond. Our interns are Diane Lugo and Isabella Rosario. We ended the first episode of the series, y'all might remember, with a cheesy-ass Brian McKnight song <laughs> that our editor, Leah Danella, insisted we play as a song giving us life. But it was not, in fact, giving us life. <laughs> we lied. <laughs> it was a lie. Um, so we're going to end this episode with a song that many of you told us would have been a way better pick. Sorry, Leah. This is what we said before it got cut <laughs> out by our evil editors. I want to hear the 10, 9, 8 part. Beyonce's countdown, obviously. 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 I love that song. Me too. Me too. I am counting down the days until I can break bread. That is not sourdough bread, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) With my family, kiss them and hug them. Super tight because I miss them so much. I'm also, I'm looking forward to hugging you, Gene. You always give good hugs. Oh, you. You do. Thank you. I'll be trying. Unfortunately, we can't give each other a hug IRL, Shireen, but we will be hanging out on Instagram Live this Thursday. Yay. And y'all should come kick it with us virtually, obviously, socially distanced, technologically mediated with us (laughs) um, while we chop it up and answer questions from y'all about stuff. Don't make them too hard, please. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you. Exactly. It's a hard time. Don't make it harder. Let's have some fun. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. Be easy, y'all. Peace. The biggest story in the world is a science story. And keeping up with all the latest coronavirus research, it's a lot. So on Shortwave, we translate the science you need to know into short daily episodes. Listen and subscribe to Shortwave from NPR.